Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. All right, we've got a little bit of a different show for you today. Today, we are talking about logistics. We're talking about supply chains. You've probably seen some stories of these huge shipping containers um, off the, you know, off the coast of California, not being able to unload all of the items that are in those containers. You've probably even gone to the grocery store and you've seen that there's a shortage of items or maybe you are trying to buy supplies for some kind of project at home and you aren't able to get the supplies or there's like a six-week lag time. Like all of these things are interconnected. And there are some political theories about why all of this is happening. It's just contributing to this anxiety that a lot of people have about the geopolitical sphere right now and the state of our world and specifically the state of our country. Thankfully, I really think this episode is going to walk you back from the ledge rather than um, all of that contributing to this kind of like apocalyptic feeling that we all have, which maybe it's a little justified, but but I think that you'll learn today that it's not completely justified. And rather than thinking that it's, you know, intentionally this, you know, master plan to, um, you know, to drive us into complete scarcity, we're going to talk to someone who is very logical about this. He is an expert in logistics and supply chains, and he is going to tell us exactly why this is happening. He's going to reveal some things that I just didn't realize that have been going on behind the scenes for a really long time. And then at the end, he's going to talk about some solutions, not just solutions on the political level, um, but also solutions that you and I, that we can do, that we can take things into our own hands if we are worried about you know the supply chains and the things and the shortages and the things that we see that are going on. So it's a really interesting conversation. Again, a different conversation than we're used to on Relatable. It's not about theology. It's not about culture. It's not even really about politics. It's about this very nitty gritty process that I personally know very little about. Um, And we are going to, we're going to get smarter because of this person. He's going to bring in expertise that we don't typically have on this podcast. So I'm super excited for you to hear from our new friend, Ross Kennedy. Without further ado, here he is. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Ross Kennedy, a uh, 15-year veteran of the logistics and supply chain industry. Pretty uh, simple way of just saying that other people uh, pay me to move things from point A to point B. Uh, gotcha. My particular sort of expertise seems to be in this uh, sort of intersection of, of politics, geopolitics, economics, and logistics and supply chain. And uh, it's been a been a wild ride the last few months seeing yeah how 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 what i do has suddenly you know which has always been kind of this man behind the curtain right uh, for an average consumer is now kind of stepped forward in a way that you know i don't think most people realize quite how interconnected the world was and yeah how uh, how the big world of ships and trains and trucks gets things uh you know from from overseas to our store shelves Yeah. And I found you on Twitter for that reason, because I've Mm -hmm. been trying to look into, okay, why are we having these, uh, why are we having these shipping containers that are unable to unload the supplies? And there are a lot of conspiracies about that, but I don't know a lot about the supply chain and logistics. And so I found you on Twitter and you seem to actually know something about it. Most people in my realm, we like to pretend like we know something about everything. But when it comes to this, a lot of political cultural commentators, uh, which is what I am, we don't actually know. So I wanted to bring an expert on. When people are talking about supply chain issues, when people are looking at all of the ships at all of the ports that are unable to unload the supplies that they have, Mm -hmm. what are we really looking at here? What are we talking about? 
Yeah, I think I think for a lot of people, really, the first uh, the, f- the first thing that people really ever uh, triggered in on since the pandemic started, in terms of really understanding the scope and 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 the vulnerability of of, of this very sort of vast globalized network we've built, was the Ever Given incident uh, back in March, and it, it sort of captured the imagination of the world that this this uh, giant steel ship that's 400 meters long, you know, four football fields long, essentially, uh, or even a little bit longer, had somehow managed to get itself turned sideways and wedged into the bank of the Suez Canal and effectively blocking about 15% of all the trade in the world at the time. Right. Uh, that that route is so important. And it, it really hit home for people the first time that image came out of uh, a fairly large excavator. We all have some sense of scope of how large an excavator is. You see them on the road at construction sites or whatever. And those are pretty big machines. And so you see this very large machine sitting on the bank of a river, and it is absolutely dwarfed by this massive vessel. Mm-hmm. And when you start to, and then that caused people, I think, to start to look a little bit about a uh, 40-foot container they see going down the road. They realize 40 feet is actually pretty big. You know, these containers are eight and a half feet tall, nine and a half feet tall. They're sitting on top of, you know, three and a half foot tall chassis off the road. And they, and they begin to realize that there's a lot of stuff that moves in these things. Mm-hmm. And as they began to consider the scope of even one single ship, with that many containers, with that much weight and that much mass, and then scale that across thousands of these ships around the world, it, I think it really started to hit home for people that, that there, there's something bigger at play here. Mm. And so when you're look, you know, when we see the video of traffic reporters or CNN reporters or whomever, you know, flying over the harbors there at Los Angeles and Long Beach, and you see 30, 40, 50 ships at anchor, People maybe for the first time are able to connect that to each of these huge ships is the size of the same one that wedged itself into the canal uh, and into the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. And the scope is almost overwhelming when you really think about what these ships weigh, how fast they move. Um, it, it's not an agile system that we have built that can sustain and support a network of ships like this that are carrying all of the trade of the world. About 90% of global trade moves on water. And so when you when you consider that 20% of everything in the world is made in China and that 90% of that, you know, just using rough statistics is moving on water, that that is a phenomenal uh, scale and scope for the average person to go, hey, wow, you know, wow, all all of this gets here that way. And we don't typically Uh, have a visual of it, but I think seeing all of these ships off of a port unable mm -hmm. to unload, it gives us a visual of what you're talking about, that most of us at this point, you know, at this point in the advancement of technology, we're so detached from where we actually get our stuff that we're really Mm -hmm. not thinking about it. We're just relying on the fact that we're going to be able to click on Amazon. It's going to show up to our front door. But we're not even thinking about where it's traveling from or how it's getting here or who is unloading it. And so people are understandably really concerned about this, especially in what already seems like a tense political moment. And it Mm -hmm. seems like there may be some conspiracies flying around that this is Joe Biden purposely, you know, (laughs) not allowing the supplies to get to America because he's trying to, you know, he's trying to crush us or something like that. Is that the Mm -hmm. case? No, not at all. In fact, these problems predate um, the, the really the, the the direct cause goes back to when China shut down in January pre Lunar New Year of 2020. The n- none of us in the industry really knew what was happening. All we knew was this this 
this thing, you know, this, this coronavirus, which we were seeing the videos coming out of China. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of uh, uh, back and forth over, is this serious? Is this an op? Is this what, what's really going on here? And so we get to the end of January. President Trump declares this national emergency. And very quickly, uh, the uncertainty of political bias and political agendas came in. First, we were supposed to mask, then we weren't supposed to mask, and we had all these things going on. But from the supply chain side, all of this relies on certainty. At the moment, a, a, a company who may be a, a Walmart, a Target, anybody says, we're gonna import goods, there's a certain amount of stability and, and reliability that they depend on from mm -hmm. a geopolitical side, from an economic side. So while we were all sitting here at, at sort of this moment of confusion, not knowing what's going to happen, is this World War Z or is this just sort of a, you know, sort of a tempest in a teapot uh, or something in the middle, all of these companies were still having to assume that because supply chains can't stop and start on a dime, they're not a race car, right? And so they were having to assume that this is probably going to be business as usual at some level from a shopping standpoint. So they were still putting orders in at the factory. And we're used to a three-week or a four-week delay around Lunar New Year. That's baked into the cake of everybody's procurement and logistics cycles. That's a Chinese holiday? Or is that what you're yes. saying? Okay. And so yes, you anticipate kind of a slow turnaround then because things are just mm -hmm. slower over there. They're celebrating like we would celebrate Christmas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and one thing a lot of people don't realize is, is that a lot of the manufacturing in China is not done by people who live year-round. Uh, in Shanghai or mm. in Shenzhen or in Hong Kong or Qingdao or wherever, those people come from interior, you know, interior provinces, whatever it may be. And China, you know, geographically is a huge country just like ours. So those people will have to take, it takes them days to leave the cities, to get back home to their families, to celebrate. They spend the actual week of, of the Lunar New Year holiday with their family. And then it takes them days to get back. So there's this whole, it's about, you know, a one week, technically a one week holiday. Actually, it's about a three week productivity loss from a supply chain side for American importers that are manufacturing there. This time in 2020, what we had was a very long, uh, a very long cycle of six to eight weeks while China was locked down before, during and after Lunar New Year. Because mm. Lunar so New Year was, is what, beginning of February? The last year, it was the very beginning of February. OK. OK. So, so you're talking about it just extended even longer than usual. And maybe that's mm -hmm. part of why you guys didn't know. OK, is this just an extension of our normal, you know, the normal mm -hmm. slowness that we are experiencing right now? Or is this going to be something a lot more drastic? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so during that time, it wasn't just the uncertainty of us in the industry wondering, well, how long is this? Is this really a durable issue? Purchase orders were still flowing in from American companies, American importers into these factories. So before when the factories would turn back on and they'd have about three weeks of purchase orders to make, you know, home goods or apparel or electronics or auto parts or chemicals or whatever it may be that a company is making over there and importing here. Now we're at six, seven, eight weeks of backlog, production backlog, six, seven, eight weeks of raw materials not moving into China. And so the calculation that I made at that point was that China would do what, what's called a V-shaped recovery, which is where as, as quickly as they stopped, they were going to ramp back up as hard as they possibly can from a production cycle because China is very dependent mm -hmm. on the dollars and, and, and the currency it generates from its exports. So the longer they were offline, the longer China was locked down and the factories weren't producing and exporting goods to the rest of the world, 
the worse it was going to be financially for China. So my calculation, which ended up being correct, is that they were going to go from a standing stop to just ramping up as fast as they possibly can, throw bodies at the problem. If people get sick, it doesn't matter. But as soon as they could end their lockdowns over there, they would. And so they did. Concurrent to that, though, what happens is these ocean carriers, remember these big, huge ships, these things cost anywhere from 50000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars a day to operate. That's the fuel, that's paying the crew, that's provisioning, that's all the things that goes into the operation of one of these giant ships. And so they're not going to just keep these ships tied up close by, waiting for the port of Shanghai to resume business as usual. They moved those ships out. They took them somewhere else where maybe the lanes were still productive or they were doing these things, but a huge amount of capacity exited the market right away from a transportation standpoint because if they left all that capacity in and the factories didn't come back online, rates would bottom out, costs would skyrocket because these ships aren't operating, and all of a sudden the ocean carriers are going broke. So they overcorrected the other way. They took mm-hmm. a huge amount of capacity out of the market, and it took weeks to start even start getting capacity back for the carriers to trust that the, that this demand for export was real again. And so you had this this as as production increased and capacity decreased. Production kept accelerating as high as possible. Capacity slowly went with it. So you had this just divergence of, um, of, of output and things to ship and, and a much slower recovery of capacity to ship it with and rates began to increase. And so by the time the ocean carriers, which was around June or July, got their full capacity back into the trans, what we call the Trans-Pacific Trade, which is Asia and the U.S., By the time they got all of that capacity back in, rates had already doubled. Demand had already backlogged to such an incredible extent that even if we stopped making anything in China right then, it would have been October before we cleared the backlog of goods that were being produced at the factory. October 2020 at this point is is, is what we're looking at. And uh, sorry, just to to clarify a couple things, because I know know, this is not something that we typically talk about. So you're talking about um, towards the beginning of 2020, when we didn't really know what was going on, we didn't know when the... When the factories were going to start up again, when we'd be actually able to, when I guess companies would actually be able to empty the supplies on these shipping containers mm-hmm. outside of Shanghai, they said, okay, we don't want to just sit there. You said that they have to move to other places where the vessels are still open. But then you mm-hmm. said that you have to take, uh, we took a lot of stuff or the companies took a lot of stuff out of market. So what do you what do you mean by that? Um, so like were they still able to unload these ships or like did they turn around and go home? What exactly kind of happened there? So when an ocean carrier uh, either what's lays a vessel up, they put them in labor earth or they um, move that vessel to another what we call a trade or a trade lane. So for example, they may take a vessel that's normally running from, the port of Yantian in South China to the port of Los Angeles and say, okay, well, this vessel still needs to be productive. We still need to keep the crew occupied. Cause again, at that time we didn't know what we didn't know yeah. about COVID. We didn't know we were going to have to lock the whole world down. Right. And that that was a political calculation that would be made. So these ships suddenly nothing was being made in China. So maybe they then moved them to Vietnam where Vietnam was still producing goods at the time. Yeah. And so that ship started moving goods from Vietnam to uh, Rotterdam mm-hmm. in Europe because they wanted to keep these big expensive vessels churning profitably to the extent that they could while minimizing the amount of ships that they had to lay up, crews that they had to send home, 
It takes a week to two weeks for a crew to get back to the port, reassemble and get back into the, you know, the rotation on the ships. So we had a lot of these things happening where decisions were made to stop, but it takes weeks, weeks to get a vessel back online, moving back in that trade, loading again at Shanghai and taking goods to Los Angeles. Gotcha. So those decisions that were made to stop things very quickly took a lot longer to get the capacity back in. And we're talking about all kinds of uh, all kinds of goods, all kinds of mm-hmm. materials from all kinds of different companies. Absolutely. It was everything from I mean, the semiconductor shortage is the one that's gotten a lot of attention now, but uh, it was everything from tires to electronics, uh, apparel, furniture is a huge thing that gets made in China, particularly yeah. knockdown furniture like you'd buy at Walmart or Big right. Lots Ikea. or Target. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ikea. Uh, so we had we had all of this stuff just stop being made and then suddenly it was being made again, but there was no place to send it because there was no way to carry it across the biggest ocean in the world from there to here. Yeah. So we had the ability at the time to receive it. They had the ability to ship it, but there were no ships sitting in the middle to carry things from A to B. Okay, guys, is all of that that we're talking about, is it kind of just blowing your mind a little bit? Are you having to pause and be like, wait, let me take this in and try to understand really what's going on. Is it a little overwhelming? Maybe you need to take a pause and you need to renew your mind by listening to scripture. That is why Dwell app exists. It is a Bible app. It's inspired by the psalmist command that we must hide the word of God in our hearts. Dwell has has built a beautiful listening and reading experience for the scriptures with over a dozen new recordings of the Bible. They've handpicked voices that will engage and inspire you. And in case you were wondering, they do have your favorite version. They've got the ESV. That's my go-to. They've got the NIV, KJV, NLT. They've got a lot of others, NASB, all that good stuff. They also feature a new read-along experience. And so you can actually read big, bold, beautiful text even while you're listening. That helps you retain what you are listening to and reading and truly hide it in your heart and memorize it, which is super important. I understand a lot of you are moms like me, and so you're super busy. You don't feel like you have time to sit down every morning for an hour and a half and just sit there and read your Bible diligently. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't read our Bible at all throughout the day. We can listen to it when we're on the go, when we're cooking, when we're cleaning dishes, when we're in the car. It's still important to make sure we are renewing our minds, refreshing our minds through God's Word. Dwell makes that not just possible, but also really fun. So to get started with Dwell, go to dwellapp.io. IO slash relatable. When you do, you get a 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for Life. That's a really good deal. Uh, that 33% off means that you save $50. So make sure to visit dwellapp.io slash relatable. Commit to scripture for the rest of this year or for life. Visit dwellapp.io slash relatable. Dwellapp.io slash relatable. I don't remember in 2020 feeling um, uh, like feeling the inconveniences or the weight of a supply shortage. Like Mm -hmm. this is the first time just in the past couple of months that I've seen people even talking about the inability to get this stuff off the ships outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. Why is it that it seemed like things were going pretty seamlessly in 2020 when you're really describing uh, what sounds like kind of a, a big mess at the beginning of COVID? It was already becoming a mess. What happened, though, and and really where it began to kind of sort of dawn on some people 
that this could be a very durable problem past 2020, you know, into 2021 was the, we started to see the effects in about July of, of lockdowns plus the first round of stimulus Mm -hmm. that went out. And I think maybe even by then we were into our second round of stimulus. But what happened there was restaurants shut down. People weren't going to athletic events. They weren't getting to go play golf with their buddies. They weren't getting to go out drinking bars or whatever it may be that they did as a recreational hobby or as a way of spending dollars and time outside the home. Mm. Mostly they were sitting at home, not going anywhere, not spending money on vacations. And they were looking at the TV or at the couch that they didn't like. They've got stimulus dollars. Most people were still working at the time and saying, you know what? I've got all this disposable income suddenly available to me, this bit of a windfall. I'm going to replace this furniture. I'm going to buy the new TV. I'm going to get the laptop. So they, they, we transferred spending and economic activity from things that don't require ships and containers all the way. We dumped all of that money suddenly into things that require ships and containers. The system has already largely been hand to mouth in some ways. Trucking has been constrained for years. Rail capacity to move containers between the ports and the interior cities like Chicago or St. Louis has been constrained for years. Chassis, the, the, the bare frames that the containers ride on on the back of semis, those have been constrained for years, but it was a hidden issue that we more or less kind of kept in the industry. The world at large didn't really know about it. Okay. Where, this got, where this got bad was right around August and September, there was, there was a, a sudden and very rapid divergence rate-wise for the ocean carriers, MSC, Maersk, um, you know, CMA, CGM, Hapag Lloyd, realized a this issue is not going away b they have all the ability in the world to start to increase rates dramatically and and nobody could say anything about it nobody was going to stop them from doing it and now is the chance for the ocean carriers who normally operate at a pretty significant loss but are floated along because they're all too big to fail institutions all of a sudden at that point the rates began to pop what do you mean and by that? Said, the rates, I've heard you say that a few times. Can you explain mm-hmm. what do you mean by rates began to rise? I think you said at one point the rates doubled. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, the ocean carriers get paid on in, in some way by either the shipper uh, or by the receiver in the United States. So sometimes the shipper overseas in China will pay the ocean carriers for uh, to move the goods uh, on the ship and, and move them somewhere in the United States or in most cases here in the U.S., our companies that import will pay the bill for the ocean freight. And so that's paying Maersk or MSC or any of the, the ones that actually own and operate these massive ships and containers to move these goods and services. So what two or three years ago was maybe a $800 to $1,500 per 40-foot steel container to, to whatever you can get in that container, we'll move it for $1,500 bucks, mm. uh, per container from Shanghai to Los Angeles those rates now are anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Gotcha. So we've seen a one thousand. Wow. I guess it would be one thousand percent, you know, increase in two and a half years to move a single container of goods from China to the U.S. And there's this whole downstream uh, ecosystem of costs and and things that are involved to move a container. But broadly speaking, to get a container from Shanghai to China. From Shanghai, China to say Chicago, Illinois, what was a to a warehouse, right? To a Walmart distribution center or Target distribution center, whatever it may be, maybe that container cost by the time everything was added up, except for customs duties, it was about four thousand dollars to forty five hundred dollars. 
that same container now is going to cost twenty-three dollars to $25,000. So it's an enormous uh, working capital yeah. issue for companies to suddenly have one container be five or six times more expensive right. than it was. Right. The cost of goods has gone up in China to produce these things because demand is high and raw materials or labor are getting short. Right. So it's had this huge impact on the economy. And by the time this, this sort of slow motion train wreck began at the ports, we began to see as far back as August last year, where a ship would not immediately be able to pull into berth. It would have to wait maybe a day or two on water, and then it would get a berth. And as the year we kind of turned into the new year, uh, we began to get into the new Lunar New Year cycle at the beginning of 2021. Mm -hmm. Things slowed down for just a minute. We had the same effect happen where this huge pop of demand for containers to move from China to the U.S., began and it was just it was really off to the races at that point june i mean even as far back as may and june we would have 15 or 20 vessels sitting on water out at the west coast ports nobody was talking about it nobody was porting on it it wasn't 2020 or 2021 2021 okay you know so we've had this issue ongoing now for months where ships are having to sit for days before they can get a berth i think so does any that have any of that have to do with particular policies because and maybe this is just people trying mm-hmm. to make it a left right issue but you know people are blaming Gavin Newsom for what's happening in California then i saw some mm-hmm. statement by you know governor DeSantis in Florida saying well our ports are open so you know so i don't does it really have to do with anything that someone like Gavin Newsom or even Joe Biden is doing or is it only everything that you have just described do politics play a role in it at all Politics do play a role, but politics play a, a shaping role in how a system like this works because of the role that politics, monetary policy, um, in particular with lockdowns and contact tracing, things like that. The political decision that maybe was made with best intentions, maybe it wasn't. Um, that political decision, though, to engage lockdowns, to keep people at home to do the contact tracing and very aggressively limit the ability of people to leave their homes and to interact economically with one another or with their jobs and their employers. That labor deficit was a, was and remains a very durable and uh, uh, concerning constraint on the system. Mm -hmm. So that's what stopped a lot of the labor flow from going in. You saw warehouses that maybe they were used to operating with hundred employees now operating with 50. And, 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 but everything continues to flow in, right? So the backups of the warehouse level are getting worse and worse and worse as well, which means they can't take containers out of the port as fast. And it just sort of starts this cascade yeah. all the way back to China. The other political decision is, was the, lo- the combination of lockdowns and stimulus pulled a lot of people out of the labor force that still haven't right. come back in. Right. It's only been in the last few weeks, last month or two, that most states have seen the sunset of the CARES Act provisions, the boost in unemployment and stimulus and things like that for people that uh, got laid off or were not able to work during the pandemic. And a lot of those people are not coming back to work either. Mm-hmm. They readjusted their lives over the last year around one less income or around, in a lot of cases, if someone's a, a laborer who makes 15 bucks an hour and works full time, that's equivalent to a $30,000 a year salary. Yeah. Child care, you know, if, if, if they have to go to job, they have to pay someone to take care of their child to go to a $30,000 a year job. It, it doesn't pencil yeah, out for them. Netting zero, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't pencil out for them to to actually go back to work, right? You know, so it's 
it's one of these things where to the extent politics has absolutely made a huge impact, uh, it has. For Governor DeSantis, whom, whom by the fan, I'm in general, I'm very much a fan of, uh, but to dunk on some of the bad political decisions that Gavin Newsom's made as governor of California, but a, a massive thing that one man, no, no, no whole book of policies could have fixed because of the way freight flows to and from the United States. Florida's just not as big of an import market. The port of Miami is, I think, maybe like the seventh or eighth ranked largest port in the U.S. by volume. Mm. Savannah's bigger. Houston's bigger. The port of New York is bigger. Charleston's bigger. Seattle, Tacoma's bigger. The two main ports at Los Angeles and Long Beach. So it, it's also a question of how much demand. Florida is not a gateway port. Florida is a fantastic state, but it's an appendage that hangs off the bottom of the United States that from a freight market standpoint is not very optimal to utilize as a gateway to the rest of the United States, which is why New York, Savannah, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Seattle, Tacoma are the big four as far as what we call a gateway port which is the biggest ships, the most freight coming in, not just to the distribution centers that have set up in those areas, but movement on rail and by truck into the interior of the rest of the United States, where a lot of demand is. Okay. The U.S. Yeah, we don't just live at the ports, but yeah, so California's problem is much bigger than Than anything a good or a bad governor could do. Yeah. Right. Um, So... Everything that people are seeing right now, and you don't have to be a logistics expert to say, huh, things don't really feel that great economically. Things feel strange. People even have like that intangible feeling. But at the same time, some people are going to grocery stores and they're seeing, why are we out of eggs? That's really weird. Or Mm -hmm. there's not things that I can typically get available on Amazon, something really small. And I understand is a first world problem, but there are times that we get our, uh, our groceries delivered, and that service was unavailable for a mm-hmm. little while. There are products that we typically get through that service that we are un- a- unable to get. And then some people say they're, you know, renovating their kitchen or their bathroom. They're unable to get those supplies or they're just super expensive. Um, mm-hmm. Car dealerships are dealing with a shortage. Do all of those have to do with these supply chain issues or are they separate issues? No, every single one of them has the same root cause or or at least is experiencing the same impact this is globalization in particular but but even just the way an economy functions okay there's buyer and there's seller and that's a and b mm-hmm. and everything in the middle is supply chains and everything that physically needs to be made and transported through time and space is subject to the same sort of disruptive factors particularly when you're talking about a pandemic you're talking about a lot of uh, political and economic motive where everybody's kind of at war within the United States, but you know other countries, everybody's competing for suddenly scarce resources. So a good example is uh, meat, right? We produce an enormous amount of meat. We're a huge exporter of meat to the rest of the world. And that would be things like chicken and pork and, and you know other kinds of poultry, steak, uh, you know, beef, whatever it may be. But suddenly shortages were showing up on our shelves and people couldn't figure out why. They're like, well, what's going on here? You know, we've still got plenty of cows. But two things had happened. Uh, there were numerous outbreaks of COVID amongst workforces at slaughterhouses. And we don't have near as many meat or you know, on slaughterhouses anymore, meat processing facilities. And so suddenly meat processing capacity was offline because a, a lot of workers were out of work for 14 days. And that shut down the pipeline. But even something as simple as packaging 
there's a shortage of packaging. Mm. The foam trays that steaks go in and then the, you know, the plastic wrap that goes around and the labels that go on it. Most of that stuff's not made in the U.S. Most of that's made at factories overseas in Vietnam or Thailand, Malaysia, or China. And they make the foam packaging and then that foam packaging or the saran wrap or whatever is imported to the United States. So even if we had steak that we could theoretically put on the shelves, the grocery stores, the meat processors, whatever, didn't have the materials they need to actually safely process and transport that stuff to our shelves. All right, another break to tell you guys about Start Mail. If you care about your privacy, which you should, it's probably time to start thinking about which email service you use. Those free email services like Gmail, like Yahoo, heck, maybe even Hotmail if you still use that. All of those are using you as the product. And so they are selling your information your privacy to third parties to then make money. That's how they're able to give you those services for free. Startmail is totally different. They don't sell any of your information. They're not reading your emails. They are not using you as a product because you pay a super affordable fee to Startmail. They don't need to sell your information in order to make money. They really, really prioritize all of their customers' privacy. Uh, The email can be encrypted. Even if the recipient doesn't use encryption, when you delete an email in Startmail, it's actually gone forever. They use their own servers, not Amazon. So you don't have to worry about Startmail somehow getting kicked off of their server, like what happened to Parler. And if you're worried about, okay, you've used Gmail forever and you want to switch over, but you're worried about switching, you know, everything, all that information, it's totally seamless. You can easily transfer all of your current email data. There's no starting from scratch. It's backed by the most stringent privacy laws in the world. You get unlimited anonymous aliases. This feature protects your main email address from spam and phishing attacks. So when you're giving your email to a company but want to protect your identity, Startmail can generate a shareable alias email so people can't sell your information and they can be deleted at Anytime. Uh, my husband and I both have Startmail accounts. We really appreciate their commitment to privacy. We just feel safer knowing that, uh, you know, some random people in Silicon Valley aren't reading through all of our all of our emails. I mean, who knows what kind of information about all of us they're selling? It's kind of creepy when you think about it. Well, Startmail is the official non-creepy email service. Start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash Allie. That's Startmail with a T, S-T-A-R-T, mail.com slash Allie for 50% off your first year. That's startmail.com slash Allie. Now, is it is part of the problem that over the years, Republicans and Democrats have um, have increased our reliance on China? And second part Absolutely. of that question, do the politics between the United States or really just the West and China have anything to do with these shortage issues? I've heard you talk about before that when you're mm-hmm. looking at supply chains and logistics, you're not just talking about companies who, you know, from the pure motives of their heart, want to make sure that people have the things that they need. Like you've said that there's ego that's co- that comes into play. There's different kinds mm-hmm. of competition. There are all kinds of political factors that don't necessarily just have to do with um, supply and demand and mm-hmm. profitability and, and things like that. So 
I know that's like six questions in one, but can you talk about, can you talk about what are some of those like behind the scenes things that are going on, maybe in particular in relation to our relationship with China? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the heuristics that, that, I mean, it's in, it's in my bio on my Twitter profile, which is kind of how this whole thing got snowballed for me was, you know, people discovering some of the things I was saying on social media, but you know, I say that logistics is a map of human intent. And, and what that does is, is, it, is it clarifies the fact that nothing, nothing is actually moving b- for any reason other than humans want it to move. Mm. So then it's really a question of these systems that we've built up, these, these, these massive ships, uh, monetary supply, drilling for oil or whatever, all of that exists to serve human needs. And so is subject to the, to the very complex and sometimes unpredictable uh, desires and behaviors of human beings as well. And if you if you understand that, I guess at a conceptual level, then scaling it up very quickly to the geopolitical level uh, is also something that we can do. China for 30 years, really since the, the the mid to late 80s, they liberalized in 1979, and we opened relations with them on an economic basis uh, and a full economic basis. You had Deng Xiaoping, and you had Jimmy Carter, and George H. W. Bush was a part of that, as well as Henry Kissinger, who was part of it with Nixon, and and then all the way through the 70s. So liberalization of China and treating them as a trade partner, despite them being a communist regime, despite everything that had happened in the 50s and 60s with Mao, uh, we saw an opportunity there to co-opt communism for the first time and utilize a communist country as a partner or as a trade weapon against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, let's let's help China move upstream from, you know, basically very basic manufacturing, subsistence farming, these sorts of things that they were doing in the 60s and 70s. And by the way, China had nuclear weapons a long time ago. Yeah. Like they had some level of manufacturing capability. And we saw that and we said, oh, we can tap into this. We can tap into uh, their huge labor pool. They were already a much larger country than us, uh, you know, from, from a population standpoint. And and let's let's utilize trade and and, and bilateral economic relations as a way to Maybe keep communism in line, yeah, and and also benefit the American economy. Reagan was when a huge sp- part of this. I love Ronald Reagan, but if you read his autobiography, you know, published in the mid '90s, he still really believed that if we imported capitalism, um, then you know, commu- they would see how wonderful liberty mm-hmm. is, and that they would become more like the United States. But we've imported capitalism, and they've kind of exported communism to some extent, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I guess that's you're saying that's part of what has led to the problems that we're seeing today and the over-reliance on them, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you had two factors at work there. Deng Xiaoping always said, you know, bide your time, hide your strength. And, and he meant it. And, and to what extent maybe he meant that as, as a weapon against the West, we can't necessarily be sure, but we certainly can look backwards at least and realize that there was a recognition by China that even as a hedge against American hegemony, if we ever got on the wrong side of them, they got on the wrong side of us control of our supply chains was very much part of their of their doctrine and of their plan going all the way back into the 80s. In 1999, a book came out, you know, in, in the military and in the, in the national security establishment, they call them the two colonels. Uh, but a book came out in 1999. It was written by two colonels in the People's Liberation Army. It's called Unrestricted Warfare. And what Unrestricted Warfare was, was, was loosely uh, a 50, 60, 70 page white paper on all the various ways in which a country like the United States is vulnerable to asymmetric attack on an economic basis, on a political basis, on a cultural and social basis, 
without ever actually attacking a country like the U.S., would it be possible to fight us and collapse us without ever firing a shot? <laughs> and so as as that became uh, that and that was open. So it was doctrine before that. Right. In 1999, they published this thing publicly and everybody's kind of like, what are, they, what are these crazy guys talking about? Like China's not going to do that. China depends on us. Yeah. And well, our consumer demand. Imagine that they would become the superpower that they are today then. I mean, I think a lot of people then were still thinking about rural, poor China mm-hmm. that had been crushed by Mao's cultural revolution. There was no way that they would ever be able to get to the level that America was. But they've always been playing the the long game. Um, and I, I want to I want to hear you talk about that more. I could talk to you for another hour about that. That's <laughs> kind of randomly something we talk about a lot is the rise of China. But because I know I have to let you go, um, I, I want to know, is this the new normal, these supply chain issues? That's part A of the question. And then part B, which I know that you've been talking about quite a lot is what are some solutions? Maybe, you know, I can't do anything about it, but what do you think is a way that we can get out of this mess? Yeah. So, uh, to, to the question of part A, is this the new normal, uh, normal for what we would recognize in the U S in the last 30 years, where there's just a, this incredible abundance of cheap things on the shelves, it, we're not really going to retreat to that however much we want to. Mm. Uh, because what I think is going to happen is, is that we're going to see optionality. We're not going to see uh, types of products limited to us. We're still going to have TVs. We're still going to have computers and phones and all these other things. But two things is going to happen. We may not have the, the feature-rich abundance uh, of saying, well, I've for, for a phone, uh, in this particular model, I can choose, you know, five different uh, memory levels and two different processors and different qualities of camera. We're going to have fewer options, but we're still going to have plenty, right? What we do have may be a little bit more expensive, particularly as we undergo the shaking out of uh, a very difficult to scale raw materials, like, for example, semiconductors. Uh, but we will get our feet under us. We will find a way to innovate our way out of this as quickly as possible because the dollar is still a very powerful incentive for companies to do that. Uh, it won't be like it was, but it's not going to be the end of the world either. To the question of some solutions and things that we could be doing right now, uh, the world is uh, two things, two mega, you know, what I'm thinking is like macro trends are happening at once here. One is, is that the world is very much bifurcating and has into two spheres of power. You're going to have the Chinese led uh, a sphere of influence and order. And then you're going to have an Anglo sphere led by the US, but also with the UK, Canada, Australia, India, uh, the quad uh, in Asia, uh, as part of that, where where we've kind of lined up in these two big columns of, of influence. And the next 25 to 50 years is going to be shaped uh, by, by sort of this existential give and take uh, between those two spheres of influence on uh, across all domains. At the smaller level, but still just as important is, is that the average human's relationship to globalization and the average human's relationship to its own government is changing, particularly here in the U.S. There's people who would have never thought two years ago uh, about where meat comes from. But now they're asking, how can I go find a farmer, pay that farmer to produce and and, and process exactly. steak for me, and then I can buy 400 pounds? So yeah. decentralization, localization, yep. moving supply chains downstream as close as possible to the individual level is going to be where I think 
the next revolution in human innovation and supply chain innovation is going to live. Yeah, I feel that. I was about to say localization too. It's just, it's almost just something that humans are so interesting. And I feel like as someone who is an expert in logistics, you're really studying a lot about human nature. Since you said logistics is about Mm -hmm. human intent, you're just learning kind of how humans naturally react to chaos Mm -hmm. and feeling like things are too big, feeling like things are out of our control. Humans really don't like that. We don't like (laughs) um, volatility. We don't like to not rely on things. And so if we can control as much as we can, we are going to. And that means relying on yourself and the people around you as much as possible. Maybe that's actually a good thing. There's going to be, I think, some pains in transition, but maybe that's a positive step in the right direction. I don't know. I'm trying to end on a little bit of an optimistic note because it's a little bit scary. Um, can you tell us, okay, how can people follow you? How can they support you and all mm-hmm. that good stuff? Um, well, my individual account or my personal account on Twitter is uh, man underscore integrated. Um, the uh, not really a think tank so much. It's just more of this this kind of ideation machine where I can share content out on Substack is a Fortis, F-O-R-T-I-S, analysis.substack.com. Um, I, I put most things out for free on there because I, I really do want to share with the world. I don't want to tell people what to think. What I'm interested in is helping other people learn how to recognize these things for themselves, mm-hmm. filter them through their own worldview, and begin to make better decisions that, that help them live happier and healthier lives at the individual and community level. The United States, I mean, you know, constitutionally, Allie, we're a country that, you know, we were born on localism. We were born on states' rights. We were born on being a federated union of states. The idea has always been that humans organize best around small to medium scale, not massive, uh, you know, mega conglomerate scale. And so to the extent that we do that, it requires transmitting a certain ability within people to develop mental models, to assess and manage risk at an individual level and not be told what to think, but be encouraged to think differently, maybe to be wrong, to take risks uh, and to do things that, that advance themselves in positive ways along with those around them. Yeah. Um, so most of what I put out, I do for free. Uh, you know, the paid stuff I do or where I ask for money is usually when it's like some strategic deep dive into a specific issue for a company. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much. I'm thankful for the wisdom that you do put out there, the way that you're able to break it down for people like me who don't do this and study this for a living. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, guys, there could not be a better transition into our next sponsor, which is Good ranchers. So you heard the guy. We need to be relying on American farms and American farmers. When you go to the grocery store, 80% of the craft beef that you're looking at there is actually imported from overseas. It's time to support American farms and American farmers and working with or buying from Good Ranchers allows you to do just that. Their product is 100% American. When you buy your steak and chicken from Good Ranchers, not only are you getting ethically raised, sustainably sourced meat, you are also supporting American farms. Plus, the people at Good Ranchers have actually traveled the United States, meeting with all of the people that supply the meat for them. So they are guaranteeing that you have a quality, well-sourced product. Plus, we just talked about, you know, the, the wrapping and 
all of the different materials that they have to use to actually, you know, wrap the meat in the grocery stores. Well, one great thing about Good Ranchers is that they try to eliminate waste as much as possible. So all of the individual pieces of meat are vacuum sealed. They're individually wrapped. They really care about being sustainable in that way. They put the meat that you pick out at goodranchers.com slash in a box. They ship it to your front door. Takes very little time to get there. And plus, if you use that link, goodranchers.com slash you not only get free express shipping, but you also get $20 off. And if you subscribe, so if you get that box of meat every month, which I highly recommend you do, it just makes your life so much easier, that comes out to like an additional 20% off each box, brings it down to something like $5 a meal. Super convenient, super affordable. You're supporting American farms and American farmers. Highly recommend it. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie or use promo code Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Okay, so a couple things I wanted to say that I was thinking, and he had uh, he had to stop when we did, and there were so many other things that I wanted to talk to him about. We'll have to have him back on. I'm sure you guys are thinking of your own questions as well, and maybe one thing you're thinking about is the Great Reset. How does this play with the Great Reset? So I've seen some things out there um, that this is, you know, this is Joe Biden, this is Democrats, as I kind of alluded to in the conversation, you know, purposely trying to mess with the supply chains so that we can, I don't know, rely on the government to take care of us, and then that plays into the Great Reset. Well, I asked Justin Haskins about that, who is the expert on the Great Reset, who we've had on before. We'll link to those past episodes. And he says that's not really the case. And after talking to Ross, I'm kind of realizing um, that that is true. What Justin told me is that the people, you know, the economic elites that we have specified and defined in those previous episodes really don't like a lot of these supply chain issues because it makes them look incompetent. If they're the ones who are running the show and all and everyone is freaking out like, oh, we can't rely on globalization to meet our needs, then people are going to do exactly what Ross talked about at the end there, localization. Localization is not good for the Great Reset. The Great Reset is predicated on this idea that we can globalize everything and really that nationalism in particular is something that um, the Great Resetters see as an impediment to the Great Reset in this whole new world order. I know that sounds so conspiratorial, all of these different buzzwords, but it's real. It's real. Go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't already. And so this is not exactly Exactly a deliberate attempt to play into the Great Reset. It actually is probably inhibiting it in some ways because, as we just noted, people are naturally going to localize. People are going to say, okay, how can we rely on ourselves? Like you are seeing, it seems like a big exodus from um, the inner cities. Even some people, if they can afford it, leaving the suburbs and looking to buy land, whereas a couple of years ago they weren't. I saw this funny uh, video that someone put on Instagram that like millennials in 2018 were in New York City saying, oh, I love the concrete. I love the busy life. I love the tall buildings. And it's like millennials in 2021. It's like, oh, like in a little bonnet in the middle of nowhere being like, how do I make my own quilts? And they really has transitioned like that to where now it seems like young families are thinking about, okay, how can I be self-reliant? How can I rely on farmers markets? How can I rely on local suppliers? It's really just kind of incredible how humans naturally adapt. Um, And so my encouragement is to keep on doing that. I do think that as far as we can, we should think about 
how can we rely less on this huge, massive system and how we can rely more on ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be going to the grocery store. We shouldn't be relying on these suppliers at all. Um, I, I think, you know, that's inevitable still at this point. But I know my family and I, we are thinking about how we can rely more on ourselves and our local community. I think that we should lean into that. This is a special opportunity, I would say, for the church to ensure that we are relying on one another. This actually kind of goes back to historical Christianity when Christians had no other option but to rely on each other. I mean, think about, you know, the early church in Acts, how they were making sure that no one in the church had any need, had any lack, that they were supplying one another with their needs. Like this is a very unique time, I would say, for Christians to ensure even more that we are doing that. Where there is lack, where there is need, the Christian church should be stepping in. I think first and foremost, taking care of each other. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people misapply some of the verses in the Bible about um you know, caring for those around us is just meaning caring for everyone in the world. That's not necessarily true. First and foremost, we are called to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I think that we need to put our eyes closer to home when it comes to how do we deal with these problems in the supply chain and these needs that now people have that they didn't realize that they had before. Like I even think about all of the people who have been fired from their jobs, all of the nurses who have been fired because of the vaccine mandates. Like, is there an opportunity while the opportunity still exists before the global elites come in and try to mess all of this up. Like, is there an opportunity for like smaller clinics to be created with some of the people who were fired? I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's possible at all. I'm sure there are a lot of regulatory hoops that you have to jump through in order to do that. But is this a way to that America, that the world is polarizing even more, not just between, you know, East versus West, as Ross was talking about, but globalization versus localization, um, conservatives versus liberals, Christians versus non-Christians, traditionalists versus non-traditionalists, rural versus urban, like things are quickly being more um, polarized and divided. And maybe rather than constantly talking about this pie in the sky dream of unity with people who have no desire to, you know, share our values and uphold the things that we want for ourselves and our families, like maybe we should lean into that. Maybe we should lean into the communities that value the same things we do. Maybe we should be relying on ourselves and each other even more. Maybe this is a good opportunity for us to rely on our church, rely on our communities to get to know our neighbors and to try to um, focus on supplying things for ourselves and, and those immediately around us. Maybe this is some kind of blessing and we should see it as that. Um, hoping to end on a positive note because I know that all of that can be overwhelming. Tomorrow, we are talking to a doctor, Dr. Pierre Corey, and I'm super excited about it. We're going to be talking about the famous, um, uh, I have to call it horse dewormer, um, because it is a term or it's a word that we're really not supposed to say. It can actually get us censored, but we're going to say it. We're going to talk about it tomorrow and just the media the 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 media blitzkrieg i think is what dr corey called it against 
uh, against this medication, why Big Pharma doesn't want you to know about it, why they're trying to wage a negative PR campaign against it. We're going to talk about how you can get it, the corruption at the top of these organizations that's causing all of this craziness. And then again, we're going to end with some practical advice, some positive things. But it's really, it's going to it's gonna blow your mind. I'll tell you that after we already recorded it, after we recorded the interview, he said, you know, this is actually the deepest that I've actually gotten in talking about the corruption in the public health bureaucracy, Dr. Fauci, the NIH, the FDA, the CDC. So it is a must listen to interview. Um, All right. That's all we've got for today. I will see you guys back here tomorrow.